Hello, I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theater Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theater writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Upoff-Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theater Company. And this is Theater Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theater from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theater in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 85 of Theater Forward. Great to be here. And we are here together in person for the first time in a Yes, yay. Very exciting. Um, listen for all the overlapping dialogue coming your way. <laughs> um, and for this episode, speaking of being back, we are excited to be able to talk about something we've been deprived of for the past few seasons. American Theatre Magazine's annual listing of the most produced plays and playwrights of the season. Mike, can you just kind of start us off by describing what this list uh, does, what it is? Sure, sure. So it's um, it's uh, it's something that American theater spends a good amount of time soliciting from uh, the participating theaters, uh, hundreds of theaters around the country sending in their lists who are part of the uh, theater communications group. Plus, this year for the first time, also Broadway has been added um, to that list of theaters. So it's a pretty good representation of what's going on in the regions. It covers the period from uh, August 1st of 2022 to July 30th of 2023. There are some summer theater companies that are gonna fall between the cracks. Insofar as they're doing Shakespeare in the summer, that won't matter because for obvious reasons, uh, Shakespeare and Dickens with The Christmas Carol have long been excluded from these lists. Shakespeare would top the list every single year. He had 52 productions, according to American theater, in the last year. Uh, and so those two are excluded. And it's it's giving you a roadmap, both in terms of playwrights and in terms of productions. What what are people programming? And which, of course, leads to the question of why. Yeah. And I think, you know, we are not going to read the whole list of, you know, it's two lists. It's the top 10 plays, which has an asterisk because it's actually 14 because they include ties and the top 20 playwrights. And it's actually more than that. It's 24 due to some ties. We won't read the whole list. We'll include that link in our show notes, but we will certainly be calling out specific titles and playwrights as we go. Um, but before we even get into this specific list, I think it's worth noting this is the first time in several seasons that they have put this list together and shared it. Um, they didn't do one in 2020 and they didn't do one in 2021. Um, you know, 2020 for obvious reasons. Um, and, you know, somewhat notoriously in 2021, uh, American Theater, you know, sort of released a statement saying that they weren't going to do the compilation because, quote, there really isn't much of a season happening in theaters around the country, unquote. Um, and, uh, you know, we took issue with that because <laughs> maybe not where they were, but where we are, there was you lots know, of theater lots happening. Lots of theater. And not, I'm not just talking about, about us here for where we did our normal season and it was completely, you know, full live productions as well as filmed versions. Mm -hmm. But most of the regional theaters we know did full seasons right. last year. And maybe it was, you know, hybrid and maybe they did smaller cast plays or maybe they had to swap a title in or out for some reason or what have you. But, but the season really did happen last year. But... Regardless, it is still exciting that the theater season this year is more robust enough so that American theater is back to doing their list. Um, and I do one more thing I want to say before we go on is, is I just want to note the statistic about this list that most hit home for me. And that is that 
um, the last time they did this list, which was for the 2019 to 2020 season, uh, they listed 2,229 entries that qualified as full runs of shows. Um, it was 2,280 the prior year. For this current season, even allowing for audio and stream shows to count for the first time, the tally only came to 1,298, which is just over half. Um, and that is, it is sobering and it is mm -hmm. absolutely reflecting um, the apprehension and concern in the field. But nonetheless, it's, it, it's exciting. And, and as we get into the specific things on the list, I think there's a lot to be excited about. Right in here. I um, what strikes me most, and um, I love this that um, that this list. And I'm looking at the most produced plays. We have Clyde's by Lynn Nottage at the top with Chicken and Biscuits, Douglas Lyons. Newer plays, edgier plays, diverse plays, diverse stories. You know about the um, you know people out of the prison population, and 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 then we have. Steel Magnolias. And I think that's up. It's it's our time right now of grabbing, of countering these edgy plays with sort of the, the feel good. I mean, you know, Shelby dies in Steel Magnolias and that's very sad. But for the most part, <laughs> it is it is this community of women and how they support each other. And I and I love the contrary, you know, Little Shop of Horrors that we've grabbed some of the older plays as well. And um, I, I, it's a great list. I mean, the dichotomy between yes. it, being, it being Clyde's in number one and the adaptation of Clue in number three. Right. Is, it, it does feel like this list accurately reflects the two somewhat divergent paths that we are trying to, um, you know, simultaneously be on and bring back together as a field. Right. I mean, right. Exactly. You know, yes. In the last two weeks, and these are major productions, um, mostly in Chicago, I've seen Dreamgirls, Fiddler on the Roof, Arsenic and Old Lace, um, uh, and we'll be, uh, uh, there's a new production that's not on this list called Dear Jack, Dear Louise, this, this lovely little story of Ken Ludwig's parents uh, meeting during World War II by letter. Um, I'm going, as soon as we get done here today, down to Chicago Shakespeare, not to see a production of Titus Andronicus, but to see a world premiere musical, which is scheduled to go to Broadway. I mean, they've got mostly New York actors here called The Notebook, um, based <laughs> on um, the Nicholas Sparks novel. You know, this this very... Um, uh, what's the what sentimental love story? Um, and so that side, and you know, and 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 two productions, major productions of Steel Magnolias in, right. the, in the last year. One of them by the Milwaukee Rep, which was very good. So that side of this, which is represented by some of the shows you're mentioning, Julie, really that that really hit me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it reflects something that even some of the edgier. Uh, theater companies are having to take into account in terms of trying to woo audiences back. Right. Well, and it's and it's 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 both trying to woo audiences back because numbers are down. I mean, they are down across the country, and there's always the exceptions of some exciting title or 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 star that will you know draw in a full house here and there. But but across the board for for regional theaters and for the New York residential theaters, numbers are down, and right. it's completely understandable given the state of the world. So it's partly wanting to woo former audience members back. It's partly wanting to spend time cultivating new audiences who for the last several years did not have a lot of opportunity to be enticed to the theater. But it's also meeting 
the stalwart audience that stuck with us mm-hmm. where they are. Um, because we've all gone through some stuff. I'll keep this PG rated. Um, <laughs> we've all gone through some stuff over the last few years. It's been traumatic as a society, what has happened. And it doesn't mean that you don't do plays that are meaningful or that deal with tough subject matter or even that are dramatic or sad or any of that. But it's very clear to me, you know, hearing from our current audience and hearing from my colleagues running companies around the country that the audience is saying, we've been through a lot. Could you try to not put us through a lot more when we come to spend our evening with you? And I think that's really fair. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> or do right. it in a way that's surrounded by, the, I mean, Steel Magnolias may have a death in it, but right. it's a play of hope. I mean, yes. the arsenic and old right. place I saw was Ron O.J. Parson, one of <sighs> the best directors, period. Period. Full stop at Court Theater with a black family as the Brewster. So mm-hmm. it dealt with the whole relationship between black America and the cops were all white in the show, except for a detective at the top who was black, which I thought was interesting. Um, So you got racial politics brought into the play, but in a very gentle way that forced people to see what they thought they understood America is or thought they understood what this chestnut is Mm -hmm. in a completely different way. So you got to have your cake and eat it too. A fun show, but one that was also a darker version of that fun show than I had seen before. Yeah, yeah. But as we said, you know, a moment ago, there is a tremendous amount of exciting um, envelope pushing new work Mm -hmm. also on this list. Right. Uh, You know, and uh, Clyde's to me, and I think that um, the editor of American Theater really addressed this in the essay that accompanied the release of the list, um, talking about the fact that in a lot of ways... Clyde's by Lynn Nottage probably tops the list because it actually is that rare piece that brings both of those. Should we talk about what Clyde's is? Yeah, do it. So in Clyde's, you have a sandwich shop in which the most glorious sandwiches in the world get made if you don't walk out of this show hungry as well as laughing, (laughs) that you are not paying attention. But it's it's a black woman running this this shop, but in in hock in some way that is never completely defined to the mob. Um, and who, because of that, is imposing a very rigid idea of what a sandwich should be, a very traditional, very what I would call boring view. And the people who work for her, who are all formerly incarcerated individuals, all being given, a, as is Clyde, all being given a chance at a new life, but they want to build more interesting sandwiches. And so in a way, it becomes a sort of metaphor for theater itself with Lynn Nottage, who has been continually screwed, sorry, not the PG version, by Broadway (laughs) in terms of not getting the production she deserves, sort of saying, you know what, theater, you don't have to just make ham and bologna. If you give people something more interesting, they might be interested in it. And there are a lot of juicy, no pun intended, (laughs) issues in this play, while at the same time, it, it is fun and funny and heartwarming. It's 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 both the stuff we've been talking about. It's got a little steel magnolia. <laughs> that's maybe the mayonnaise, and then a lot of meat as that's well. Right, right. Yes, exactly. exactly. It's it's both those things. And so right. there's no it's no surprise at all to me that this is at the top of the list mm-hmm. with uh, eleven productions happening this season, and I suspect a lot more happening next season. I mean, we we read this play even before the pandemic because it was originally developed at the Guthrie when it was named Floyd's. 
um, before it came to Broadway and that the script is sort of making the rounds of the regional theaters at that point. And we have been quite taken with it. And, yes. you know, it's certainly, oh, we're recording in my house. So my cat wants to say things. She likes the play too. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's certainly one that's very much in the mix as we think about future seasons for all of those reasons. It, right. it, you get to have your cake and eat it too. You get to have your substantive meal and your cake is maybe a better way yeah. of describing it. Um, I think it's worth noting too, I think another factor in Clyde's um, prominence on this list is the fact that the Broadway production of this did something really cool and really groundbreaking last January, which is that they live streamed the Broadway production mm -hmm. and you could buy a ticket from anywhere in the world to watch along with the Broadway audience. I did it because I, I partly because I was curious to see the great Broadway cast and the, the, the direction and the production, but also because I just wanted to vote with my dollars, please do this more. This is good for the field. Um, and so the fact that the playwright Lynn Nottage, her representation, the producers, the unions, that everybody somehow came together and made this work to stream that for two weeks was incredibly exciting. And I think it contributed to producers, first of all, seeing it and going, yeah, yeah I could see doing this at my theater, but also feeling like the play maybe had a little more name recognition, which again, makes it an easier choice. Well, I mean, Nottage herself makes it very clear. She says that's one of the reasons this play is is doing well. Well, Lynn, it's also a, a freaking great play. But, okay. <laughs> but, but I mean, I think I'm really hopeful that in future years we're going to see more. This kind of reminds me of the way baseball was not paying attention uh, and football with Pete Rizal came in and stole the show and said, we're going to make this America's game because we're going to put it on TV and let everybody watch it. And, you know, the rest of the story is history. And there's no reason why... You can't have a win-win with streaming. As Forward knows, we've been doing it. I mean, you build excitement for something um, and you get give people a chance to see it that wouldn't. But as Jen, as you're saying, I mean, it, it's an opportunity to spread the word so that you can actually bring this play to audiences like mm -hmm. ours. And spread the word, not in, now we're all just going to do digital stuff because that works. Exactly what you said. You see that, uh, the Broadway version on your TV and then say, I could do that. Let's produce it here. Right. Or as an um, audience member, you see it and go, wow, it looks like it would be really fun. I can hear the audience laughing. That looks like a great communal experience. I want to, I mean, Hamilton being released in the film version during the pandemic did not stop people from going to see the national tour when it resumed. Exactly. Right? If, if anything, it whetted the appetite. For right. Her. Well, right. And I don't care how good your TV is. You're not going to get what I saw at the Goodman a couple of weeks ago when I saw Clyde's, which is yeah. live fire on stage and a fully functioning <laughs> kitchen. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing the about this place. The smells of the, <laughs> of the kitchen. They make exactly. sandwiches and yeah. chop vegetables on stage. And that's fun. Yeah. It's very fun. It's fun exactly. and it's theatrical and you were in the space and you know it's not tricky camera work. You are seeing them doing all of that that work. Right. Um, and it's, yeah, it's there good reason for that play to be at the right. top of the list. Um, and we should note that Lynn Nottage is also number five on the list with her play sweat as well. Yeah. So that's right. very much exciting. more hard, hard hitting. Yeah. Well, sweat I mean, all five of the top produced plays this year are by non-white men and five of the seven top, uh, um, playwrights, I should say, five of the top seven plays are by non-white men. And I think that that is Lynn Nottage is part of that, but so are other people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a real positive uh, part of the, of these lists, at least to me. Yeah, it's it's noticeable. If you compare this list to a list from a decade ago, the diversity of writers mm -hmm. is marked and important yep. and, 
and exciting and the and and all kinds of different plays because you've got comedies like Clyde's and Chicken and Biscuits and Native Gardens you've got plays like Fairview that are incredibly challenging you've got dramas I mean it, it is it's not and here's a token play by a writer of color it's here's a breadth of work of all different styles by writers, uh, you know, black writers, Asian American writers, Latina American writers. It, it's yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and since we've been kind of burying the lead, do we want to talk about when not just one of them? Do we want to talk about the two I, playwrights I think we at the have top of the to. list? I think that's the next step. <laughs> so that we've been talking yes. about the top ten or fourteen most produced plays, but the other list is the most produced playwrights of the year. And it is Lynn Nottage alongside our beloved Lauren Gunderson. Drum roll. Yes. Um, yes. Both with 24 productions this yeah. season. Um, nine of Lauren's were co-written her, her um, Pemberley plays. Right. Her, her, and yes, now she's venturing into musicals. Yes, uh-huh. indeed. So, um, so that's obviously very exciting, uh, but incredible writers on this list. Uh, Matthew Lopez, August Wilson, Dominique Mariso, Ken Ludwig, Lucas Nath, Jonathan Larson, Margaret Melcon, Karen Zacharias. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's really wonderful, wonderful writers. Um, and it's, worth listening to if you're gonna listen to another podcast after you listen to our podcast <laughs> but why <laughs> um, you know uh, tcg theater communications group that does this list they also did a um, an interview with both lynn and lauren together um sort of talking about their place on the list and, and what they see is going on in american theater right now and um uh they were both fantastic but i i want to particularly shout out how wonderfully Lauren uh, speaks about regional theater as the heart of what keeps American theater alive and um, and generative. And um, I sometimes, not sometimes, I often think that her work in particular is given short shrift because uh, she has been at the top or near the top of the most produced list since like 2015. But most of her work is done at regional theaters. Right. You know, there's been very little of her work done in New York. And I there's just constantly this sort of whiff of condescension that her work can't be as good, despite the fact of being produced more than anybody else's. And I would say it's also um, uh, the condescension... Um, carries over to the regional theaters yeah. that somehow we don't have as good a taste and that, that the audience that's the implication smart. right right and we know that not to be true yeah. and we're doing one of well, her uh plays we this are season. And, and you and i both lived and worked in new york for yes. many many years so mm-hmm. this is not us saying that you know out of sort of a regional pride and jealousy it's like no no i worked on broadway and I worked here and it's it, it's different and it's not one is, you know, intrinsically better than the other. Exactly. And the quality of artists is not intrinsically better than the other. And and so it's it is both gratifying to see Lauren and a playwright like Lauren show up on this list over and over again because of the relationship she's built, not just with producers, but with audiences. Yes. There's a reason we produce her work over and over again, because she's in dialogue with our audience. And that is something that happens at the regionals that doesn't happen on Broadway, mm-hmm. right? Which is most, more for a tourist crowd. And so um, the value of regional theaters is something that, that Lauren talks about so brilliantly and articulately. Um, I also really appreciated that she shouts out companies, frankly, like ours, that often do the second or third 
production of a show because that's the difference maker between a world premiere at a regional and almost everything does debut at a regional theater and what is going to give something the springboard to eventually get that Broadway production Mm -hmm. or to get your play on one of these lists. And that is companies going, yeah, let's do that second or third production when there isn't a long track record to bank on, but I believe in this. Um, I feel like Lauren is always paying attention to where she's being produced too. Yeah. You know, and, and does give, does give the, uh, the shout outs and Hey, my show is being done here and you should see it. Yeah. And, and that's a rare thing for playwrights. You know, since we're recording on the, on the morning that the Nobel prize for literature was launched, once again, Allie Smith didn't win. And Lauren Gunderson is the Allie Smith of theater. This is also somebody who is an incredibly prolific writer who in almost every one of her novels showcases a female artist from the past who has been forgotten or scientist or some person like that, who is very aware of making connections between the present and the past and history and who is eminently theatrical. In fact, she's written a couple of plays and that's, that is what Lauren does. Lauren honors parts of the past, just like she honors regional theater cities in this podcast. She talks about Atlanta and she talks about Denver. She right. says it's not just New York and Chicago. And that's something all of us need to need to remember in terms of the breadth of the work that's being done and the topics that are being covered. Um, in terms of, there are so many people I'm embarrassed I had never heard of before reading a Lauren Gunderson, I, sorry, topics, people I had never mm-hmm. heard of until reading a Lauren Gunderson play. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, what does that say about me? You know, but what does it say about our educational system that these incredible people are people that were never on my radar screen? And Lauren's the person to put them there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I be snarky for just a minute? Do it. <laughs> um, I'm looking at these top produced playwrights of 22, 23. Number seven is Lucas Nath. He has nine with one co-write. Um, during the season of 22, 23, we tried desperately to get a play of his called The Thin Place. And we were told by the licensing company that that's not being sent out. We can't do it. We moved on. And I'm just saying, Lucas Nath, if your licensing company agreed to give us the um, rights to your play, you would be in six versus seven, <laughs> tied with Ken Ludwig. Yeah. Just throwing that out. Right. That that um, It's interesting... And, and, you know, uh, uh, that's, that's one play, but you know, we, we, that's a whole other podcast, how these playwrights get their plays produced, who does it and how, you know, how does word get out and, and what's the process for us? Um, we talked a little bit about licensing companies in the past, but you know, what rises to the top and, and just the fact that that Lauren has been at the top for so long is um, a testament to her hard work and her pushing her 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 work and and creating these communities and and these people that love her and want to do her work. Yeah, and to to, to clarify, we actually were going after that script for like the last oh, three, last couple three, of years, three four right. years, and, yeah. and right. really getting to run around and 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 just to note that it's not because there's somebody else in our geographic area who's doing that play. It was right. just you know sort of you know crickets from the representation, mm-hmm. and that you know it makes a difference. Yep. When you get crickets, you move on. That that play um, brings up a whole. The Thin Place is a play that involves uh, a medium and connections to the spirit world. And there's another thing I'm seeing a little bit on this list, but also just generally in American theater right now and in American fiction is sort of. I think we are about to see a big moment in both fiction and on on stage for horror. 
um, or yeah. things that are in some way related to it. We have a play coming up at Forward. Um, our, our, our next production is going to be focusing on issues like that. Um, you know, down the street in Milwaukee, Milwaukee Chamber Theater is doing a Stephen King adaptation. There's a couple productions this year, not just one of Carol Churchill's Vinegar Tom about the witchcraft trials. Um, there's a play opening at the uh, uh, Gift Theater in, in Chicago that's going to be dealing with a serial killer. Um, no, I'm not, you know, and again, not to say that people want to be bludgeoned Sorry, um, with 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 bad stuff. But I think one of the things the pandemic has done has really made us sort of think about how off kilter our world is and yeah. horror or the thing, the penumbra around it, um, everything from science fiction to fantasy, give us a way to try and talk through for ourselves what's going on in the world. I mean, in the play we're going to be doing, it's going to be a way to, to into a discussion about race. And we'll talk about that probably in a future podcast. But there are ways in which these these kinds of plays, you know, allow for all kinds of really, really important discussions to happen within genres that people are really excited about mm -hmm. right now. And I think that's kind of cool because horror or things like it, you know, are, are so theatrical. Um, this is, there's a reason why revenge tragedies, you know, kick things off in Elizabethan England. I mean, this is really, if it's done right, it doesn't have to be sort of traumatic. It can be just really exciting and interesting mm -hmm. in terms of how it's and, done. And reflective of our society. Josh Crowsey, what this what is for seeing. you. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what we're seeing is, and, and theater always sort of leads the charge or reflects how society is feeling right now. Yeah. Yeah. And we're looking at this list of... We want we want to be challenged, but oof, <laughs> can it lighten up just occasionally? Yeah. And and the horror genre and yes, it's reflecting where we are right now. Yeah. And um, so many things that are going on. People forget that Little Shop of Horrors, which Julie you mentioned, is on this list. It's yeah. actually really funny. In addition to lots of other things. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. That's right. right. Exactly. <laughs> Anything else anyone wants to shout out from either of these? No, lists? I, I think encourage, we've kind of covered yeah, it. Yeah, encourage people to take a look and um, you know let us know what they like. I want one what more, they're excited about. One more thing: I, there's a particular play which I dearly love. I, I think it's shared at this table that I'm so happy is on here is Alice Childress's Trouble in Mind, yes, um, which got yeah. again screwed by Broadway because she, it's a play about the way in which um, black actors uh, in the theater business in the 1950s when she wrote the play were forced to you know, to go through a particular way of presenting themselves if they were going to be heard. And talk about meta. Broadway was interested in Childress's play. They said, well, we'll do it, but you need to make all these changes. And she refused to make them. It finally got its Broadway, um, you know, debut this last year. About 70 years later. Yeah, <laughs> it was very, very successful. But I want to give a particular shout out to Joe Henry and the Milwaukee, uh, Joe Hanready, former artistic director of the Milwaukee Rep and the Milwaukee Rep, which did an outstanding production of this play in 2009 when it wasn't being done generally mm -hmm. um and when you know here right in the regions when it wasn't being done in new york <laughs> um there was somebody saying this play is important and deserves to be be seen and heard yeah great go yeah. regional theater that's Indeed. the takeaway right, that's the takeaway that's yes. the takeaway come come see a play at your favorite <laughs> regional theater um and on that 
cheerful note, uh -huh. that optimistic note, we're going to say that that is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jen Uphoff-Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced, as always, by Scott Hayden, and you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook and Twitter. As always, Theater Forward, which is where you find us, theater is spelled with an E-R. <laughs> and if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in. And please be sure to leave a comment. We would so love to hear from you. We're really grateful to have you listening, and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.